if, if you're aware, I have been quite sick and um, uh, I'm on the mend, uh, at least until this morning I was on the mend. I, was, I think I was on the way up, but uh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your kindness. Um, it has been quite a journey. Uh, I haven't been to Gosford Hospital in those circumstances before and it was, um, wow, it was like descending the circles of hell. It was um, down, down, down I went, but uh, the place is amazing. They do great work, but very busy, very crowded and uh, it's given us, given us a renewed appreciation for those of you who have long-term illnesses, uh, who are struggling and suffering. It, um, it is very, very difficult. We, we, we have been, I've been blessed particularly with good health, but I must say, blessed this last couple of weeks with bad health. And so um, I think God uses all of those things, doesn't he, in our lives? And uh, recognising that and uh, giving thanks for that and going with that is in part of the process an important thing. But thank you for your prayers. Uh, As I say, I'm on the mend and we'll see at the end of today whether I'm really still on the way up. But good to be with you. How about I pray and we'll uh, wrestle with all of this together. Heavenly Father, we, um, we do thank you for the many ways you bless, bless us in health and in sickness. And uh, I pray for those amongst us who are um, suffering ill health, uh, mental illnesses, uh, many other forms of suffering, loss. And pray, please, that you would uh, be especially with them, upholding and sustaining them, uh, giving them a renewed sense of your grace and your mercy and your love. Uh, please um, cause them to cling to you and find their hope and confidence in you, as with all of us. And we pray for this time together now that um, you would help me speak what is true, uh, what is clear, and please help us uh, respond with humility towards the words you've given us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yeah, good to be with you. Look, we're in the third week of the series we've been doing, this um, series where we construct it from uh, various responses people have made to the survey question we put out so we go out and ask people uh, all over the place uh, what do you think Jesus has done what has he caused in the world and we got all kinds of responses this is probably the most intriguing of them all and uh, the one that we had to massage the most so just uh, fess up we did massage massage this one Uh, is Jesus has Jesus caused the beginning or the end of religion no one actually said Jesus has caused the beginning of religion Uh, they said something like it, I'll show you in a moment, but uh, they didn't, no one actually said Jesus caused the beginning of religion because it's very obvious he didn't. Uh, it's very obvious uh, to people that religion has uh, been part of our world uh, and human culture from the beginning. Uh, it, is a, it is a truth that every society and community, anthropologists, sociologists and so on, dig into and explore down through into ancient history and so on. They, they've found that every single one of them have been incredibly religious. Um, Or or to put it negatively, we have not found one culture or society uh, down through history, primitive, isolated, large or small, that wasn't religious. So Jesus, no one thinks Jesus brought religion into the world. In fact, that's a fairly significant observation about humans. We are massively religious. That is, we have sensed that there's more to life than this life. Uh, The vast, well, all groups have had that sense that there are powers and forces outside of us influencing our world. There's a spiritual realm of some kind. Cultures and societies have all recognised that death is not the end. There is something beyond, there's something more. And every one of these societies have given names to the powers and forces outside, the gods, the God, 
uh, spiritual forces and so on, all that inner spark with us. And all societies have created elaborate systems to respond to this sense that there's more. All societies have uh, formed religious rituals, uh, sacred spaces, temples, um, priests, priestesses who are closer to the gods, closer to the enlightenment, the divine. And this is a stubborn truth of human history. And it is just worth noting that in our day and age because we're living in a time that's quite unique in human history where there's a, vo- a vocal and noisy minority of people who are questioning the possibility of a spiritual realm and pushing us to be a secular society, just concerned about this world and nothing beyond. And it is easy to think in our context that that's the norm, but we are, it, is, it is quite unique and it's an experiment that's been tried in a couple of places, China, for instance, Soviet Union, um, both of which, as far as you can tell, over history have failed. Um, we are working off throwing a sense of beyond, but it isn't working. Uh, you, you will have noticed, actually... Well, have you heard of Meghan, Markle and Harry? Prince Harry, has anyone heard of those two? Um, interesting, as I understand... I've not bought his book, but I understand that's now the fastest-selling non-fiction book in history, um, but for one day. Uh, but um, he, he points out that he is not religious, and I think he's typical of many people. He's not religious. He's given up on formal religion, like his, uh, his mother, grandmother and so on and so forth. Uh, but he is very spiritual. And there is something that's going on there. People are throwing off formal religion, uh, but taking up spirituality in all kinds of ways because it's a stubborn fact of human things that there's, there is something out there. Do, do, do you know, and it's worth just reflecting on this for a moment. The facts of life do keep speaking to us about larger realities. So much so that it keeps compelling humans to think there must be more. This life is not it. And I dare say most of you are sitting here today, here because of that sense that you have and you'll have found it in friends and so on, family. The fact is that there are things out there and in ourselves that give you, and let me just give you half a dozen of them and then I'll just focus on one of interest for us this morning. But um, there are a number, you know, the fact that the universe has a beginning, the universe started, how? What started it? From Nothing? What was before that? I mean, these things kind of make you go, there must be, must be something more. There is the laws of nature, the order and shape to the world around us that functions the way it functions. It's not random and chaotic. There is something in us, uh, the fact of human consciousness, that we have a mind, we're not just material. There's this non-material consciousness that we have that can't be reduced just to chemistry, biology and physics. That's an extraordinary thing that it means if there's a non-material thing in us... Could there perhaps be non-material out there? These, these things humans are puzzled about and have been quite compelling. The fact of morality and conscience, that we have a sense of right, wrong, not just convenient and inconvenient. Um, there's a sense of design. And here I just want to just spend... This has fascinated me in recent times and I thought it might fascinate you. There's a thing called the uh, Fibonacci number. Here's a sort of a ma- I've had some math people talk to me in recent times. So the Fibonacci number. So who's heard of the Fibonacci number? Okay, a bunch of you. It, it, it's the number that you get when you add two previous numbers. So 0 plus 1, 1, uh, 1 plus 1, 2, 2 plus 1, 3, and so on and so forth. You go up and the numbers increase in size, of course, as you add the... And it's called the Fibonacci sequence. And uh, it, it's a thing that's been known for many, many centuries. But what, what's interesting is that the Fibonacci sequence is, is reflected in nature in many and various ways. And it's also interesting that when you take the Fibonacci numbers, the sequence, and you divide the previous one with the current one, 
you get a ratio that's called the golden ratio, 1 to 1.6 or 1.6 to 1. And out of that, you can create the golden rectangle uh, and a golden ratio that shapes spirals and how spirals function. You can see something of that there, bottom left, near the ear. If you create the golden ratioed Fibonacci number rectangles, you get a spiral, a particular kind of spiral, that's seen all through nature. It's seen in pine cones and snail shells and plants as they're in thumb and it's seen in galaxies. It's seen in the shape of a wave. It's seen in the DNA. It's seen all, in all kinds of places in the way the plant forms and the way the structure of a plant. This Fibonacci sequence gives rise to a Fibonacci ratio, gives rise to a spiral. And it's an extraordinary thing. Now, at one level... You might just recognise that it's an act of efficiency, this kind of... It, it's um, plants that form in this kind of spiral are more efficient at receiving water and being watered. Um, uh, seeds, the sunflower seeds, operates in this Fibonacci thing. It, it, they, it's a more efficient way of putting forward seeds and so on. It might just be an efficiency. But what's extraordinary is how wide spider webs uh, have this kind of shape and so on. And there's not just an efficiency but a beauty to it as well. And it speaks to us of a design, not just chaos, but a kind of shape to the universe we live in, to its large scale down to its small scale, which suggests a kind of fine tuning that has a mind behind it. So much of it speaks to us of there being more design, designer, and we get that. You know, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, greatest scientist who, who ever lived in history, said, "Nothing. If, if the thumb alone, he said, would convince me there's a God because of the beauty and the nature, the scale and so on of it all. Humans have always been spiritual. Every human society has created religious forms and rituals and convictions that re- reflect this deeper sense. And the point I'm making here is that no one in our surveys said Jesus began religion. We recognise religions have been all through human history. Greek, Roman, Pride, Chinese and so on. But what many were thinking when they were expressing something like this thought was that Jesus brought into our world a kind of religion that eclipsed, that brought a kind of religion that was new in its scale. It was global, it was massive, it was pervasive, it was powerful, it was institutionalised, the church. And I think many were seeking to express, with Jesus, something on the religious scene came that was massively new in its scale, size and pervasiveness. And that is a fact. The religion that flowed from Jesus, now whether he caused it or not, we'll come to in a moment, but the thing we call Christianity, the thing we call the church, has a power and an influence and a spread that has not been seen in any other religion in human history. Let me show you this on a map. Here's a colour coding of the various main religions of the world. Um, so you can see on the left, Christianity, whatever colour that is, what is that? Um, but you go through the different colours. What, I want you to notice this, you know, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, so on. All the other religions of the world are constrained fairly largely to ethnic groups or areas of military conquest. You can see them in the middle there. 
There's only one religion that is broken free from its ethnic roots. Christianity started with a Jew in a Jewish context and culture, the Middle East. But it is the one religion on the planet that is now present on every single landmass on the planet, every continent. And even in, say, China, uh, there are 44 million people, as a minimum estimate, of Christians. Christianity is the one religion that has spread throughout the whole globe and has influenced every culture and every society. Uh, It has influenced the world in a way that no other religion has. And I'd offer that there's a sense in which people were seeking to give expression to this. Jesus has brought this kind of thing. Now, sometimes I'm doing it in a negative way, seeking to say that um, Jesus has brought the kind of religion that's dominated the world and that's not a good thing. You'll be aware, as I am, of course, that um, there are many uh, people in our day who are trying to get rid of religion from society, make it secular. But it is interesting, it's not really religion they're trying to get rid of, it's Christianity. People are particularly opposed to Christianity. Now, why is that so? Well, in part, it's because Christianity is so powerful. It's so compelling and influential. It's not just religion that causes the secularist the problem, it's the Christian religion because its roots are so deep and so powerful and so influential, it's so dominant. Now, just observing all of this, I do want to make a positive comment. What do you make of the fact that Christianity has been so pervasive and influential? What do you make of that? Now, I want to offer one possibility that I think is true, is the true true one, but I just want to put this out there. I I think the fact that Christianity is global has, like no other religion, spread to every nation on the planet, is evidence that it is exactly what it claims to be, a word from the God of all nations. If it truly is that, If Christianity truly is the God of all nations, bringing a word to all nations to repent and turn back to Him, you would expect it to transcend culture, time, space, ethnicity and influence every culture, sociality and racial group, which is exactly what it has done. It doesn't prove it's true, but it fits exactly with what it says it is, uniquely of all the religions. You see, there is a sense in which Jesus brings the beginning of religion if we mean religion that is pervasive, influential and dominant. Christianity, Jesus has brought something. Um, Which which again just begs a question. What happened back then? What happened 2,000 years ago when an obscure man in the middle of nowhere on the Middle East, a carpenter, dies a criminal's death, never writes a book, never travels changes the whole planet. What happened back then? It's compelling and worth pursuing, uh, if you've not looked at it before. But let me now move us into the second part of our question, uh, the end of religion. So, you know, the the question that's been posed is, Jesus caused the beginning or the end of religion? Um, And as I've tried to explain, yes, the beginning is, people were meaning the beginning of something so different and pervasive. Um, But I want to suggest, with the rest of our time, that the thing he brought was so new, it's as if he brought the end of religion, actually. 
the end of religion as we genuinely understand it. Yes, he did come and bring something brand new in terms of scale and influence and impact. But properly understood, something came with him that was so new, so radical, so different. It's as if he brought the end of religion. Now, to make sense of this, I want to take us through three episodes in the life of Jesus. I want us to go back to Jesus and not sort of try and work it out from Christianity in the church. Let's go back to the roots. This is what our church seeks to do regularly. We want to go back to the source. I want to take you through three episodes in the life of Jesus. The first one is from Mark chapter 7. Now, if you're here with us new, I hope you've got that bag with the Bible in it. It's the New Testament. It's the second book. So grab that out, actually, if you've if you've got that and been given that this morning. Mark chapter 7, second book of your New Testament. This is a record, uh, an account, a biography of the life of Jesus recording the things he said and did. And in Mark chapter 7, we come to a point where Jesus was with his disciples and he was eating food without having performed certain ceremonial washings, religious ceremonial washings. Let me read it to you. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, these are the religious leaders of the Jewish world, uh, they'd come from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, verse 3, you'll see there in brackets, Mark, the author of this book, wants to explain what's going on here because you may not be aware. This is not about hygiene. This is not wash your hands before dinner because of germs. They didn't have that issue. This is about ceremonial washings that were part of their religious traditions. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they get, give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands, unwashed hands? Do you, do you, see, what's, you see what's going on here? Uh, Jesus is engaged with this religious world with all of their activities. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Now, Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied about 700 years before Jesus, a long time back in history. He said this, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, what's Jesus saying? What he's saying is something quite radical. He is seeing in the religious rituals of Judaism a set of convictions that humans have made up, that are not from God, that these men have just made up in their history past and are now part of their religious pattern. These things aren't from God, says Jesus. They're not pleasing to God. They're human, created by humans and for humans. Now, think with me about this. This is quite radical. Jesus is quite radical. Humans have got an instinct about spiritual things. It's true. There is something out there. There is something more. And people have 
kind of thought about the gods and God and wanted to be right with this God and these gods and so on and placate them and what have you. Um, Every human society has responded by creating religious rituals and practices, holy places, temples. But here's the thing that's radical that Jesus says. Just because a thing carries the name religious, just because it's driven by religiously minded people, doesn't mean it's from God or pleasing to God. Rather, it can actually be the hypocrisy of men and women who, think, who have created these religious practices out of their own minds for their own sake without ultimately any regard for the real God. Wow. Wow. What he is saying, Jesus is saying, is that humans have a great tendency towards hypocrisy, claiming to be pursuing God and seeking to honour God, but actually creating their own practices and rituals that are more about keeping God away and pleasing themselves. Now, what do you do with that thinking of Jesus? Well, to be true to it, you need to apply it broadly. What Jesus can be effectively saying, and I'll come back to this in a moment, is that it's possible that the religions of the world are not humans seeking to please God. They're not from God. They're not different ways of getting to God, but are made up by men who have created their religious traditions for their own sake to impose on people around them. Jesus raises this very question. Is it possible there are much, many more Pharisees in all of our religions who have created our own religions to hide the truth of God rather than to engage with the truth of God? You see, when you get back to the actual Jesus, you find him challenging the very nature of religion itself and threatening the very nature of religion, the legitimacy of religions. Is your religion actually about God or really about you? There's the first episode. It is very subversive and confrontational. Let me give you the second episode. It's in Luke chapter 18. So turn over now to the third book of the New Testament. Jesus here tells a story. And he tells a story about two men who come to the Jewish temple to pray. Um, let me take you through it. Uh, as you go through this story, effectively what Jesus is doing is presenting two men who pray to God and he says only one of them is right with God and the other one is rejected by God. Now, which is it, he poses. And let us take you through this. Um, chapter 18, verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus didn't tell them that he was telling them this parable for that reason. They didn't know why he was telling them this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, a religious leader, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I have. 
This man thanks God for all the things that he has, uh, his goodness, that he hasn't been a thief, that he hasn't been unfaithful to his wife, that he hasn't been evil, and in fact, he's actively pursued good things. Now, the other man is a tax collector, verse 13. Tax collector in the ancient world uh, would have been a Jewish person who betrayed his other Jewish compatriots and took from them to give to the oppressive powers of Rome. So he was a, he betray, he was a betrayer. He was a dreadful sinner. This tax collector stood at a distance when he came to pray. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, there are the two two different men. And um, Jesus poses this question, which of the two is accepted by God? Which of the two gets to heaven? Now, beware of our conditioning. After hundreds of years of talking about Pharisees, we immediately have an instinct to know that they're the bad guys. But in the first century, they weren't the bad guys. They were actually perceived to be very good. Let me give you it in Aussie, Australian terms. The, the Pharisee, he, he's the bloke that you wished you had living next door to you. Because when you go away, he brings the bins in for you. Wow. He mows that nature strip in front of your house as well. Do you know, not just not just lays a line in front of his fence and leaves yours. No, he mows it for you as well. And he doesn't ask anything of you. He's just a lovely man. Um, He is faithful to his wife. If you pushed him and said, you know, what do you like? He'd say, look, I'm not perfect, but I tried to be the best dad I can. Uh, You know, I've not killed anybody. You know, I try and do the good I can around the place. Uh, Soccer with the kids, I'm on all the rosters I can get onto. You know, I'm, I'm even doing the sausage sizzle in the rain. I'm running the sidelines where no other dads are. I'm trying to do what I can. You know, I'm that kind of dad. I've given to church. I've fought against racism. I hate bigotry. I'm doing the best. I'm, I'm, I'm into the environment. I'm trying to recycle and so on. He's a good man. The other, the tax collector, not only doesn't go on the rosters with soccer, he never turns up to watch his kids play soccer. He's unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he doesn't, not, only, not only doesn't he give money to church, but when the bag comes around, he takes money out, which is not, not to give you any ideas, but, uh, um, which is why we don't have a bag anymore. But, um, but he's that man. You know, he doesn't give to charities and causes. He doesn't care. Um, and when he turns up to church, he is too ashamed to sit amongst you shiny people. And so he sits at the back and he won't even look up to heaven because he knows he has nothing. And he beats his breast and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now Jesus says, which of the, one, which of the two go home right with God? Which of the two does God accept? Which of the two go to heaven when they die? Now here's the deal. If you asked every different religion on the planet, they would all give the same answer. They would all say the Pharisee. Let me take you through this. Um, you may not have thought about the different religions of the world, but let me... Islam. Uh, how do you, if you ask the, the Muslim how you get to heaven, uh, Islam, the Quran, would give a couple of different answers along the same kind of line, but the, the Quran, chapter 5. Be careful of your duty to Allah... And seek the means of nearness to him and strive hard in his way 
that you might be successful. That, that, uh, in other places, that, that, that you, you need to acknowledge that Allah is the only God and Muhammad his prophet. You, you need to acknowledge this truth. You need to have right thinking and strive hard. And what's the is, Islamic answer? You need to be good. You need to be as good as you can. You need to avoid major sins. You need to do the best you can. You need to do prayers five times a day. You need to be good. There is the religious answer. Do what you can do to be as good as you can to get there, like the Pharisee. Let me give you the Buddhist answer. Now, Buddhism uh, is a little bit more... How do you become enlightened? How do you move through the levels of enlightenment? Well, the answer there is, just quoting, uh, meditation, spiritual and physical labour and good behaviour. These are the ways to achieve enlightenment. Um, the person who gets enlightened, who moves through the layers, uh, is someone who attracts good, uh, who does as well as they can and becomes uh, more thoughtful and proactive and so on, a good person, the Pharisee. Hinduism, uh, how, how do you move uh, through enlightenment into paradise and so on with Hinduism? You need to realise your caste's moral duty whichever the forecast you're in, and live with right views, right speech, right actions. But the key again is you and how you live and what you do. You go through every religion on the planet and ask the question, what must I do to be right with God or to achieve enlightenment? Or you ask every religion, the answer from every religion is you. What you do, how you live. You need to earn it. You need to be good enough. You need to be better than you are. You need to try as hard as you can. The religious answer is the very thing the Pharisee was operating with. I've not stolen. I've not been unfaithful. I've given tithes. I've done the best I can. Therefore, the crowd would have said to Jesus, he's the one. That's the religious answer. But Jesus gives the completely opposite answer. His answer is different from every religion on the planet. What must you do to gain right standing with God, to be received into heaven, to be justified? He says, you must realise there's nothing you can do like the tax collector. You must see that you are so full of sin, so broken, so humbled, so ashamed that you have nothing in your hands that you can bring. You must be like a little child who has nothing. Jesus gives the completely opposite answer, that the only hope to get right with God, the true God, has got nothing to do with you and your life and your merits and your performance at all. Which is such a radical answer, it's the end of religion. It's the unravelling and undoing religion. If religion is defined along the lines of every other religion, which is that you need to earn God's favour, feel the shock. In fact, you go back to this first group that I talked about, the um, Jesus when he's critiquing the religious leaders about washings of hands. Um, uh, they're, they're asking, how can Jesus, how can you, you and your disciples please God if you don't do our religious practices? And Jesus says, you've got it completely wrong. You've created a way of coming to God that's based on your traditions and your ideas and it is the very opposite of what God needs and wants. 
And insofar as every religion on the planet has the same idea that it's about what we do and how we live and how good we are, insofar as every religion has that idea at its very root, it is, says Jesus, wrong. Hypocrisy. Wow. Who's he think he is? God or something. Jesus says, according to his light, truth, every other religion is merely traditions taught by men, made up by men. Religion says it will always be the Pharisee who makes it. And so every religion is designed to create Pharisees. But Jesus says it's the tax collector. Now how? How is this possible? How is it possible that it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee? Because here's a few thoughts. No one can be good enough for God. The, the, the tax collector, every attempt at goodness of the Pharisee, every attempt at goodness is shot through with pride and hypocrisy. You just explore your own heart for a moment and see what's there. The whole of human nature is fallen, it's riddled with sin. Even our righteous deeds, says the book of Jeremiah, are riddled with sin. They're like filthy rags. What looks good to us is like that kind of green apple that's beautiful on the outside, but when you take a bite of it, it's brown and rotten on the middle. Our righteous deeds look to us to be meritorious, worthwhile, impressive, but before God, the light shines on it and sees right through it. So even as we hold out our best, it is merely offensive. What is truly necessary, said Jesus, is humility. The humility to see what we truly are, so that we give up any notion that our performance and merits will earn the favour of God. That was easier for the tax collector. Because it was right in front of his face, his favourites. The message of Jesus isn't, it's your efforts. The message of Jesus is the hope that we can have is only outside of us. The mercy of God, who is full of compassion and grace and delights to show mercy. There's a beautiful verse, Micah chapter 7, verse 18. That God delights to show mercy. That's the God that he is. He delights to show mercy to the broken-hearted, the spiritually impoverished. In fact, the good man, the Pharisee, and the tax collector were both as bad as each other in God's eyes. Mercy came to the one who realised it and beat his breast and asked for mercy. But now, how is all of this possible with a holy God? How is it possible for a holy God to receive people like tax collectors just by pleading the mercy of God? Well, let me take you to the third episode, the last one, and very much more quickly to a very famous verse. Chase this up later, John chapter 3, verse 16, the fourth book of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Gave there is a reference to the cross. It's a reference to the death of Jesus as a criminal on the cross where he died under the judgment of God in our place for us to pay the debt that we owe 
so that a righteous God could forgive sin without, without sweeping it under the carpet, without saying it's of no consequence. It's the way God could be holy and just and forgive because he pays for sin in the perfect sacrifice that he himself gave. And here's the, here's the last thought for us, friends. Here again is the complete opposite of religious thinking. Here again is the end of religion. You see, every religion on the planet, again, if it conceives of there being a God or gods, conceives of those God or gods as passive, waiting for humans to placate them, waiting for humans to give their sacrifices that the gods might be happy. All the gods of the religions of the world are waiting for us to do something to make them okay. But Jesus brings the truth, the news, that the true God is the one who comes for us. It's his love for us that means he comes, he comes into our world, seeking us, and giving his life as a ransom for us. He provides the sacrifice that we need to placate his just and holy anger. It is the complete reverse of every religion. And it makes it possible for humans like us, like tax collectors, to be forgiven by this holy God. You see, you have man-made religion. Man-made religions are those religions that talk about what you need to do to earn God favour, what we need to do to placate God and do it for him, man-made religions, which are purely the traditions of humans, full of hypocrisy, says Jesus. And then there's God-given religion, the only religion, the one that Jesus brings, the one that says God comes for us to seek and save us and give himself in love for us. So that if we would but cast ourselves on his mercy, look to the Son, to Jesus, for his love, grace and forgiveness, we'll find it. Because that's the God of the true God, the real God. You know, Jesus is not one religious leader among many. He's not even the best of them. He's the only one. There are not many roads to God. And you choose which adventure fits you. Jesus comes and brings an end to every other religion. I am the way, the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are radical claims. And I'm conscious that you might be sitting there thinking, this sounds quite, who does Jesus think he is? This sounds arrogant, it sounds exclusive. I'd urge you, just the global influence of Christianity. What happened back then? Who this man is to at least give him a look, come along to life. Come and consider the evidences, you'll be blown away. You see, why has the Christian message spread across the globe? Because there's no other message that strikes such a chord deep in the human heart of the truth that we do have no other hope except that God does for us. And it brings, there's no other message that brings such joy and peace and hope because God has done it for us. Christianity has been so influential because it brings for sinners a message of the love of God in contrast to every other religion. Let me finish by sort of making this very personal this morning. I'm going to suggest there might be two different kinds of people sitting amongst us. There might be more than this, of course, but let me just speak to two of you. 
It might be that there's one kind who's sitting amongst us, you are a good person and you think of yourself as a pretty good person. You don't think of yourself as perfect, you're not arrogant, but you think, I'm pretty good though. I, I'm not a bad dad, I'm not a bad mum, I try my best, I go to church every now and then when I can, I give money to charity, you might be thinking I'm doing all of these things. And you might be sitting there thinking, are you saying I have no hope of getting to heaven? What would Jesus say? Correct. You have no hope of getting to heaven, good person. Based on the good things you've done. You have no hope. Because they're not as good as you think they are, those good things. And the standard required of God is so far beyond any good that you could do. And in the end, it's all shot through with pride. You have no hope based on the good things you were doing. Are you saying, therefore, I have no hope at all? No, I'm not saying that. You have the same hope as the tax collector because of the radically new thing that Jesus brings into the world that ends religious thinking and brings an extraordinary new message that is hope for sinners, for tax collectors. Because of his death for you, his love and mercy for you, where he's paid the price. So that if you own the fact that your life isn't what it needs to be and ought to be, and you beat your breast before God, and you cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, you can have this confident assurance that the true God, who is not like the gods of other religions, the true God has come for people exactly like you, who have humbled yourself to see the truth about yourself. He has given his son's life to pay for you, And if you would but just look to Jesus and put your confidence in Jesus and cling to him as your only hope, he will receive you. Wow, what a message. There's a second kind of person sitting amongst us and you are the tax collector. You are the person who realises in your shame that you have done all that you ought not have done. You have failed everything you should have done. And you're not even sure you can sit in this place. And you might find yourself asking the question, are you saying that I'm lost forever because of my failings? And I would say to you, no. Because of the God of love who came for people just like you and me. People exactly like you who know they've got nothing in their hands that they can bring. And if you would but beat your breasts and cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, he will receive you no matter the hole that you have found yourself in. No matter how dark, he will have you because he came for you. You see, Jesus is unique. There is nothing like him in the world of religions. He brings an end to religious thinking because he brings something so new which means there's hope for sinners like you and me. And that hope is in him, his grace, his mercy, his work, his death for you, if you would but just cry out to him. Let me pray.
Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation that you bring in the person of Jesus. We thank you that it is so new and so wonderful and so radical. Please help us, um, uh, those amongst us who are not yet followers of Jesus, please help those amongst us in that place to explore these things, investigate these things, see the truth of who Jesus is, that you might bring them to see themselves, your love, compassion, grace and mercy, that they might throw themselves on you beat their breasts and cry out to you for mercy and be saved. Pray for us us who do know these things that you might keep reminding us day by day by day that our only hope with you is what you have done for us in Christ. But praise God you've done it and thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.